0: we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the Gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, last week we had a wonderful portrait of discipleship. You might say the cost of discipleship was on clear display. As we continue now our reading of the Gospel of Luke, we have today a great, I would say, portrait of the Church what the Church looks like, what its central concerns are, what the demands upon it are. And the setting is Jesus sending out 72 disciples. So just put yourself in that position. So all of us baptized people are disciples of the Lord, and we're in this relationship with him. He's going to send us out. So let's just kind of walk through this passage. It'll teach us very important lessons about the Church. So we hear the Lord appointed a further 72 sent them in pairs before him to every town and place he intended to visit." First we learn, we are a missionary church. Christianity is not so much a a quiet, sit-in-place spirituality. I mean, there's there's room for the whole monastic contemplative dimension. Of course there is. But the basic thrust of Christianity is toward mission. Mittere in Latin, send and, and mission just comes from that word. We are sent out. The Gospel is not for us simply to savor for our own edification. I mean, we can and we should, but then the impetus, the trajectory is always toward sharing it. Now, I, I've said this many times, but I think for a lot of the ordinary baptized, they don't think of it that way. They think, yeah, I'll, I'll go to Mass and I'll receive the sacraments and I'll try to be a decent person, but you know I'm not a missionary. I'm not like a, a, a priest or a bishop or a, a sister or a professional missionary. Well, you might not be crossing the ocean. But yes, as a baptized person, you're like one of these 72. You've been sent on mission. See, what would your life look like? Just think about this. If when you woke up in the morning, you said, now, how will I bring the gospel of Christ to somebody today? It might not be through you know the most eloquent preaching or through high theological debate or something like that. It can be as simple as an act of love, an act of kindness, telling someone about Christ, a, a parent to a child, a friend to a friend, a co-worker to a co-worker. But how would your life change if you every morning felt, yes, I'm like one of these 72 who've been sent out on mission? I love the fact he sends them in pairs. It's very important. We do this work in relation to others. There's something, I think, repugnant to Christianity and the idea of a single person doing his or her work. There's a marvelous movie with Robert Duvall called The Apostle. It came out, I don't know, maybe 25 years ago now. Really good movie about this uh, complex, conflicted man who was a preacher, but also a deeply flawed human being. And he does a lot of good things. But one of the signs that all is not well with him is he essentially baptizes himself and then sets out alone on what he construes to be his mission. That's repugnant to the Gospel. Jesus sends them the 72, but then he sends them two by two. To have a companion in this work, someone with whom you can talk, someone who can see what you're doing and correct you, give you feedback, insight, someone with whom you can pray, someone with whom you can share bread, with whom you can laugh and cry. It's exceptionally important in the spiritual life. We don't do this alone. So think, everybody, not just on the grand scale, but your ordinary missionary work you know, with co-workers and with family and with friends and so on, that you're not doing it alone. You're not just on your own, but you're always in communion with someone else doing the same work. Just think of so many people across the ages. You know, Benedict and Chrysostom, Jerome, Francis and Claire, Dominic, uh, Mother Teresa, Ignatius, they all drew to themselves people. They might have begun, think of Ignatius beginning in that cave at Monrisa, was kind of on his own, but for his great apostolic work, I mean, he gathered to himself this. Society of Jesus. Mother Teresa indeed started off more or less on her own, but very quickly former students came to her and her order grew and grew. Same with Francis. He begins in a kind of solitary attitude, but then very shortly people come to him. The Lord sends us out two by two to do his work. Okay, let's keep listening to the Lord. The harvest is rich, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the harvest master to send workers to his harvest. It's funny, everybody, but this is a—it's an occupational hazard in a way of of spiritual people, religious people—is we start to think this is our project. So we we get into it, whatever your work is, of, of teaching or catechizing or, or missionary work, evangelization work, caring for the poor, whatever it is. You start to think, oh, this is this is my program, and I'm going to come up with my plans and you know, we'll have our meetings and we'll determine what we're going to do. I mean, okay in itself. But in the Bible, everybody, nothing great ever happens apart from prayer. Let me just say that again. Nothing great ever happens apart from prayer. Yes, plans and projects and all that, fine. But if and only if it is sustained by, animated by, backed up by, Prayer, ask the harvest master. I know this sounds maybe overly obvious, but you know, even in, in pious parish settings with you know good, dedicated religious people, if you ask the simple question, well, have you have you prayed about this before your meeting, before your, your strategizing session, before you launch your program, did did you pray about this? Did you ask the Lord of the harvest? I might have told you before this story, but I've always been impressed by it, that the great Billy Graham, you know, the evangelical preacher, uh, always sent a team ahead of him a year in advance of one of his crusades in in a a great city. He'd send the team not to do logistical work, but to pray. Their whole job was to pray for the success of the mission. That's good. Ask, Ask the Harvest Master. So whatever you're doing in the Church, Pray, pray, pray. Okay, let's keep listening to our Lord. Do not carry a walking staff or traveling bag. Wear no sandals and greet no one along the way. There's just something about poverty and simplicity of life that makes you a more effective evangelist and missionary. Now, I say Look, I, a lot of my work is in evangelization. I, I say this. You know, with a certain self-reproach. I mean, we're we're all sinners. I'm a sinner, um, but those who live a, a simple life, a life of of poverty, I think have a greater efficaciousness when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. He has been so good here as Pope Francis, reminding us of this fact. I remember uh, this was. 2015, I'd just been named a bishop, and we were all in Washington, and the Pope was coming to visit, and, and so all the bishops were standing out on the front steps of St. Matthew Cathedral in Washington. And there's all these limousines and big fancy cars because politicians were there and so on. And then up comes this little this little dumpy car. And it was almost comical, like a like a clown car. And up it comes, <clears throat> and out of it comes the Pope. And you know, I to this day, that's many years ago, I remember the power of that symbolism. Somehow, when we denude ourselves of a lot of the goods of the world, we're not relying on that but relying on God's providence, somehow we have a more effective um, evangelical uh, power. So don't carry a walking staff or traveling bag. Wear no sandals. Strip yourself of some of the accoutrement of life, and you might find yourself relying more on God's providence. Now, notice a kind of flip side to that. The very next thing the Lord says, "...stay in the one house, eating and drinking what they have, for the laborer is worth his wage." So, yeah, poverty and simplicity of life, absolutely. But is there an obligation on the part of believers to support those who do the explicit work of the Church? those who are are the preachers and and the celebrators of the liturgy and those who are caring for the poor in a formal way, is the Church on for supporting them? And I think the answer clearly is yes. The, The worker's worth his wage. Do we, now I'm speaking broadly, do we as a Church really support the people who are involved most directly in the work of ministry and evangelization and care for the poor? Do we see this as kind of a, oh, an extraneous thing we might, you know, throw a few dollars in the collection plate once in a while, Or do we see it as a basic work of justice, what we owe to those who are doing in a very explicit way the work of the church? So, yeah, poverty, simplicity of life, absolutely, but also the obligation of all the believers to support those who are doing this work? You know, just I know from many years of leadership in the church. We'd have nothing in terms of parishes, hospitals, schools, seminaries, institutions, were it not for the extraordinary generosity of of lay people. Good. Responding, I think, precisely to this, that the worker is worth his wage. Good. Thank God for those generous people. Okay, just a few more. What should the minister do when he gets to the city? Jesus says, cure the sick there. Very interesting. Was Jesus a healer? Absolutely. One of the most basic things we we know about him is that he healed the sick. He was called a soter. That's in the Greek of the New Testament. It means healer. Read Philip Jenkins. He does these marvelous books on the church in the uh, developing uh, countries. So we tend to read things through the Western lens all the time. But look at the church, especially in Africa. What does Jenkins notice? That the churches all have healing services. Not extraneous, not like, you know, once every six months and a few people come. No, it's essential to the life of the church is that people come to be cured. Yeah, good. Have we lost confidence in that? Jesus said, go cure the sick. Now, healing takes place at many levels, of course, intellectual and spiritual and psychological. And the church does all of that. It's involved in healing. But I think also, even in the most kind of direct way, do we take that seriously? Or we think, oh, that's for you know, ages gone by. No, I don't know. I don't know. He tells the 72, cure the sick where you go. And the Church is still a source of that healing. How about one more? The second great task after curing the sick, Jesus says, is proclaim that the reign of God is at hand. Well, there's the central theme of his own preaching. When he first appeared in the hills of Galilee, that was what was on his lips —the reign of God. What does it mean? Oceans of ink have been spilled trying to explain the kingdom of God. Can I say this, maybe? Jesus himself is the kingdom of God. That means he's the coming together of divinity and humanity. He's what a properly ordered humanity in relation to the infinitely loving God looks like. And therefore, the world that he opens up, that's the kingdom of God. Love and peace and forgiveness and nonviolence, love especially of one's enemies. Think of the world and all of its manifestations of cruelty and hatred and injustice and violence and, and scapegoating and all of that. That's the kingdom of the world. Jesus, in his own person, is the reign of God. He's the kingdom of God. So what do we do as a church? We proclaim him. We announce him. We offer him to the world. And it's a challenge to the earthly kingdom that dominates our thinking and our behavior. Okay? So there you got it. Go back to Luke, chapter 10. Review this Gospel, fellow baptized people, and you'll see, step by step, what the church ought to look like, what the church ought to do. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.